The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Once you get to Genesis 7, you might as well put something there, because we're not going to actually get into Genesis 7 for a little bit, so just hold your place. Uh, In case you weren't here last week, I feel like I want to start with the disclaimer, same disclaimer I gave last Sunday, so for those of you who were here, it's a repeat, I apologize. Normally on a Sunday morning when we get together for our time of preaching, we just turn to a passage of scripture, we read it, and then I work through it in detail just trying to let the scripture speak for itself. That's called expositional preaching, in case you're not used to that term, and it's what we practice here regularly at Cornerstone. However, we've got three Sundays that are a little bit different, and they're different on purpose because I'm doing a little bit of introduction to the flood story in Genesis 6 through 9, and I wanted to take three Sundays to cover some things, and because this is different, we're not going to do what we normally do, which is just digging into the text. So if you come back, not next Sunday, which I hope you do come back next Sunday, but the Sunday after, then you'll, uh, you'll get to see what we normally do, just so you know. Let's start with a word of prayer, and then we will get into our message this morning. Father... We do praise you. You are our risen Savior. And it is a joy for us to be here and to worship you this morning and to sing these songs and to fellowship together. Now, Lord, we are attempting to prepare our hearts for this major story in Genesis that we have been working through here for for several months now as we're going through these first 11 chapters and we're finally to the flood story. And we want to understand it well. We don't want to treat it like unfortunately so many people have in the past incorrectly. And so we're taking this time and we're trying to lay a good foundation for our understanding and for our hearts. And while there's a part of me that doesn't like that because I just want to get into the text, I know it's valuable for us. And so this morning, Lord, will your spirit be active even in this kind of a message to help us understand these things? Will you affirm in our hearts, Father, the commitments we need to have as we approach your word. Because that is going to be critical to a right understanding of this story, and it's critical to a right understanding of everything you say. We believe that your word is perfect, that it is the only source of truth we have. And so I pray, Father, that even through these weeks of introduction, you will prepare us and affirm in our hearts these basic commitments of what your word is and how we see it. As we come to you now, we give you our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. In case you weren't here last time, I'm just picking up really where I left off. And I would highly recommend, I don't know how many people actually do this every time I say it, but I would highly recommend that if you weren't here last Sunday, that you take a little bit of time this week and go back and listen to the recording of last Sunday. Because really what I have here are three, one sermon spread out over three weeks. Okay, there's a series of introduction that I feel I need to do, as I said a moment ago, in order to prepare us to really understand the flood story the way that I think God intended for us to do. And if you're wondering why I would spend three weeks introducing just one story of the scripture, 
I would probably suggest that you may not really understand this story as well as you think you do. Yes, it is one of the best-known stories in the Bible, no doubt. But it is also one of the least understood stories in the Bible, at least in my opinion. And so I want to take the time to lay a good foundation for us so that we can get the message that I think Moses is trying to communicate to us. Now, as I sat down and studied, I came up with a number of issues that I felt we needed to talk about. And this is subjective. Everybody understands this. If you sit down and study, you might come up with more issues. You might come up with less But for me, as a teacher, considering you in my audience, trying to figure out what you guys need to hear, how many, who remembers how many issues I came up with that I thought we needed to address before we can even look at the text? Someone say it. Eight issues. And how many did we cover last week? First two. That's it. The first issue was the triteness with which we often handle the flood story. Do you remember that? Because we're so familiar with this story, because people, even unbelievers, are so familiar with this story, they give it almost no thought whatsoever as to what the story is really, really about. We've turned it into nothing more than Dr. Doolittle meets the love boat. And so you've got a happy little boat of animals floating around, and everyone's cute, and it's all great, and we want to decorate our children's rooms in it and let them play with it, and we want to put our iPads in the cover. You know, we've got all this stuff, this cutesy stuff out there, And yet, very few people give attention to the fact that, by necessity, this story is about the deaths of unknown thousands to unknown millions of people and animals. There is a ton of death in this story, and and yet we want to to decorate with it. It's, It's really weird when you stop and think about it, but what it's reflecting, I believe is the triteness with which we've come to look at this story. We just don't even really consider it anymore. We just kind of just throw it out there as if it's just common and happy and no one wants to really give any deeper thought to it. If we're going to approach this flood story correctly, we can't do it with triteness. We need to do it with sobriety and come to this and try to understand the truths that are being communicated to us here in this incredible tale. The second issue... I gave you was the misinformation that's often associated with the flood story. Both of these first two points have to do with things that are are wrong in the way we look at the story, if you hadn't picked that up yet. And this one I thought was fun. I thought was fun, being up here again, being able to give the little quiz I gave last week. We had ten simple questions, right? Uh, testing your knowledge of the flood. Most of you are, are church people. You've been in churches all your life, so you should have known quite a bit about the flood. So let's just rehash the embarrassment here for just a moment. I remember, uh, I'll remind you of the grading scale. If you got one question wrong or zero questions wrong, you got an A. If you got two questions wrong, you got a B. Three questions wrong, you got a C. Four, you got a D. And if you got five or more questions wrong, what did you do? You failed. So if you didn't fail, raise your hand nice and high. Look around the room, everyone. Everyone else wasn't here. All right, put your hands down. See, I I spared you a little bit, a little bit of embarrassment there. Nobody else was here but you. I'm just pointing out to you that we're in a room full of many of you who who have have grown up in church. We should have had like hundreds all over the place. We had one last week, one A. That was it. Everybody else was getting B's and C's, and I had several people come up to me later and admit they got D's on my little quiz. I don't think my questions were particularly hard, but the fact of the matter is is that many of us have just absorbed 
false information about the flood story from all kinds of different sources, from cartoons we watched, from stories we read, from things that we saw in this or that, from uh, Evan Almighty, or what was the movie with uh, Steve Carell? Which one? It was Evan Almighty. Yeah, so you've picked up all these weird pieces of information about the flood, and you just assume that some of them are biblical, when in fact, many of the things I asked last week were false, weren't they? They, they were traditions or embellishments that have been built into our minds around the flood story that aren't actually in the text. Well, I hope you see why that's a problem. Because if you don't even know the basics of the story, how can you ever hope to get down into the, the nitty-gritty of what the story is all about? And so, thankfully, the solution to both of those problems was the same, wasn't it? It was simply that you need to take time to study the Scriptures for yourself to make sure that what you believe is actually based in the text. You need to know what you believe and why you believe it, not just because someone told it to you in the past, but because you can see it in the Scriptures. And as we're going to approach the flood story, this is going to be our our method. We're not going to just assume this and that. We're going to let Moses guide us through this tale so that we understand the point that he was trying to make. And guess what? Big surprise. That's a great bridge into where we're starting off today. Okay, amazing, almost like it was planned. Today we're moving into the next three issues here. And, and remember that I subjectively arranged these eight issues so that we go from the least important to the most important. My determination of what, was the, what things affected our understanding of the story the most, we're now in the middle section of things that are really going to start to build into our understanding of this story. Next week will be the the pinnacle of it, but let's see these next three today, just picking up where we left off last time, and we'll keep working through the eight issues. Issue number three is this. It's the way we understand other flood stories. The way we understand other flood stories. Now, I'm going to start with an assumption this morning that I'm pretty sure is incorrect, but I'm doing it just to be safe. I'm going to assume that for many of you in this room, you are unaware of the fact that that Genesis is not the only place where we find the story of a great flood. That you are under the impression somehow that the story of Noah is the only one out there since it's the only one people decorate their kids' rooms in, okay? That this this is it. Let me tell you now, you are incorrect in assuming that. This is not the only place we learn about other flood stories, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because Typically, if you read or study on this subject, this is going to be one of the first things that people will talk about as they're trying to help you understand the flood. And so I want to have a moment to speak into it as well. Many, many cultures have a flood story similar to that of the Genesis account. And so I'm just going to give you a quick sampling a sampling of these various stories as quickly as I can, just so you're aware of, of, of this issue and how widespread it is. I'll start with the ancient Sumerians. Everybody remember the Sumerians and from your elementary history classes? Uh, they had a flood story, and in their flood story, the gods of the Sumerians decided to not save man from an impending flood, and so this, this hero, his name is Ziudsura, he learns about this coming flood, and he builds a boat to save himself and the animals. That's it. There's more to the story, but it was broken. It was there. You don't have all the pieces to it. But that's not the only thing about the Sumerians that was interesting. Do you remember this picture from a few weeks ago? Remember what was significant about this particular photograph? This is a picture of an obelisk where the Sumerians had written out a list of their kings, and they divided their kings into two groups. Do you remember what the two groups were? 
those who lived before the great flood and those who lived after the great flood. And so the Sumerians had, just as part of their understanding of the world, the concept of a flood story, but it gets a little more involved than that. A more famous example is that of the Babylonians. You've probably heard of a story called the Epic of Gilgamesh. In this story, a man named Utnapishtim is warned by a god of a coming flood, and so he builds a boat. It's 120 cubits long, 120 cubits wide, 120 cubits high. It's a big square. And on this big square, he builds all these levels, and he brings in all the animals and the people and all the stuff he needs, and he uh, floats out the, the flood. He waits for the flood. Finally, the flood comes to an end. His boat comes to rest on Mount Nemush, and after that, he, uh, he releases a dove to see if the land is dried out. He releases some other birds as well, and when he finally is done and he comes out of the, of the boat, he sacrifices sheep and burns incense to the gods as a thanksgiving for bringing him safely through the flood. Sound familiar? Uh, the, the Greeks had their flood stories. Plato writes about it extensively. He even tries to provide a date for when the flood occurred. The characters of Prometheus and Dardanus are both flood heroes. The Irish have flood stories. The Finnish, the people of Finland, the great people of Finland, they have flood stories as well. In their story, a, a guy nicks his toe and the earth floods with blood. And one man has to save the world and all the animals from this flood. Find stories in Africa, China, India, Korea, Australia with the Aborigines and their story. The a frog swallows up all the water and then a snake makes him laugh. And when he laughs, he floods the world with all the water. You find American Indians with flood stories, Incans. I could go on and on and on about all the flood stories. Now, why am I bringing this up? What do we do with this particular piece of information? Well, let's, let's talk through some of the positives here first. First, we shouldn't be surprised to find flood stories all over the world. When you think about it for a moment, if the biblical story is actually true, and every single person alive today is a descendant of Noah and his three sons, then it's expected, at least in my mind, from my way of thinking, that you would find traces of this story, of this event, all over the world. And sure enough, you do. From, from Australia to the Americas, up into to Europe, all over the world you see traces of this story. Second, I'm amazed to some extent by the similarities in these stories and the Genesis account. In most of the stories, there is a god or gods who are either causing or allowing the great flood to occur. Often this flood is a form of punishment to man for his wickedness. And often there's a hero who, through his actions, saves both humanity and the animals from this judgment. Many of these stories contain the basic outline of the Genesis account. And that doesn't surprise me. Normally, though, I find that Christians stop here. And they don't really want to take this any further, but you, if you're going to be intelligent and, and, and conversant in this subject, need to be aware of the negatives also, and I'll do them in reverse order. There are a lot of similarities, but there are a lot more differences. I mean, just think about some of the, the things that you would see in these stories. In many of the stories, the god or gods in question are capricious, silly, even fearful beings, completely unlike the God of the Scriptures. In many of the stories, the length and extent of the flood vary greatly. Some of them, the flood lasts for a few days. I think in one of the Chinese versions, it lasts for over 20 years. 
In terms of the extent, some have it being just local, some have it being worldwide. One has it being in blood, not water. Very different. In many of the stories, the hero isn't alone. He may not even build a boat. He may just climb up to the top of a mountain and take some people with him, and that's how he, he saves everyone. What's my point in pointing this out to you? It's simply that you need to be aware of the good and the bad. They're a mixed bag of things when you look at these various flood stories and people can interpret them however they want. Second, even though these stories are very widespread, not everybody has them. I mean, they're all over the place, no doubt. But there are many, many cultures where we don't know that they ever had a flood story. Some of that could just simply be because it's lost and we just don't know of it today. Or it could be because they never had one at all. And so it's not universal. Not everybody has one. So, so how do we understand them? Why do I think this is an issue we need to address? Well, I want to address it because, as I said at the beginning, some of you aren't quite as ignorant about these flood stories as, as what I'm assuming. And I have run into more than one Christian who, when wanting to talk about the flood, brings this issue up and sees it almost as proof that the biblical story is true. May I point something out? If you really believe that this book is the Word of God, it doesn't need proof from any other flood story anywhere. In fact, if there were, weren't any other flood stories found anywhere around the world, you would still believe that the biblical story of the flood is true, right? I, I hope so. See, what this is bringing us back to is the, the question of whether or not we really trust the Scriptures to be the authoritative Word of God that we say they are. I, I see affirmation in those stories, no doubt. I think they can be helpful for my understanding, but my faith isn't based in these other stories any more than it's going to be based in any other kinds of proofs anywhere else. My faith ultimately has to rest on God and on His faithfulness to accurately tell me everything I need to know in order to live my life for Him. Not only is that important, but I feel it's important because it forces us to come to terms with our own presuppositions. You know, what will be the ultimate authority in this story? Where are we going to turn to, to really understand what it is that Moses is trying to, to explain to us. Do we turn to outside things? Or do we let the Scriptures speaking speak for themselves? Again, I'm not against proofs. I expect them because I think that God's Word is true. But the reason I expect them is because the Scriptures have to be our ultimate authority in life. And so our views of all these other things have to be kept in the right perspective. Does that make sense? All I'm telling you is to keep all these external things in their right perspective. Issue number four are the various flood theories that are out there. And there are a lot of them, if you're not aware of this. People have theories about all kinds of things surrounding the flood. For example, there are numerous theories about how big the flood actually was. In case you're not aware, there's four that are very, very common. There's the local flood theory that all the, the Genesis account is describing is a flood that occurred around a river area, around a, a small lake basin, and it just affected the people that were right there around that. So that when Noah gets on the boat with whatever animals he had, you know, all the other people that were not affected by the flood, they still lived. They're, they're fine. Uh, another common theory is what's known as the regional 
flood theory. In this theory, the flood is bigger, maybe it affected a much larger area, the Black Sea Basin, the Mediterranean area. The flood kills everyone there, but again, anyone outside of that continues to live. The third one is called the known world theory. You're like, what's a known world theory? Well, imagine that, that Noah, or excuse me, the humans and the animals had only expanded out so far from Eden. In this theory, the flood kills them all because it only affects the area where they had traveled, just the known world. The rest of the world itself remains untouched. And then finally, the global theory, one that perhaps many of us grew up with. In this theory, the entire surface of the entire world is covered with water. Everyone dies except for Noah and those uh, who enter the ark with him. And so we have all these theories that surround the flood and our understanding of it that we need to be aware of. Another example, just to throw out examples only without answers at this point, is the construction and logistics of the ark. In fact, last Sunday I had, I think in three, four people come up to me at separate points and say, have you ever read about you know, questions about how they handled all the, the poop and pee? Yeah, yes, I have read a little bit about that, I'm, you know, strangely enough, because I'm weird. But uh, there are questions people have about that. How do they get all the food on there? How many animals could fit? How big was the ark? Da, 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 da. People have all these questions around these things, which are good questions, and so they build theories around all of them to suit their various viewpoints. My desire is not to answer all these theories today. We will cover some of them as they come up in the text later on. All I want to do is address the assumptions with which we approach these questions going forward. Because regardless of what theories you have held or questioned or thought about, I want you to be aware of the fact that your assumptions or presuppositions affect the way that you view the flood. It ultimately will affect the way you answer all of those questions. You, you, you don't realize, I, don't, I think all of us are guilty of this, we don't realize how this, this set of, of, of assumptions that are in our minds and hearts change the way we look at things. And so I'll use one as an example. The reason why people argue about the extent of the flood is because of one comment here in Genesis 7. So here you go. There's your clue. Turn to Genesis 7. I'll let you get there, and then I'll put it up behind me. I like you looking at your Bibles. Genesis chapter 7, verse 20, Moses writes that the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them how deep? How deep? Fifteen cubits. Now, does anyone remember how long a cubit is from last Sunday? About the size of your forearm. Someone held up their arm. That's right, 18 inches roughly, okay? Size of your forearm. That means that Moses is indicating to us that the mountains were covered by 22 feet of water. Now, Let's think about this for just a moment. If we just assume, I'm just going to assume for a moment that the only mountain he's aware of is Mount Ararat, okay? Let's just pretend that nothing else exists, just that one. In order to cover Mount Ararat by 22 feet of water, since water levels itself out, it's had to go all over, you would have to add 630 million cubic miles of additional water to the surface of the earth to do that. I didn't say 630 million cubic feet or yards. I said 630 million cubic miles of water or three quintillion tons of water to cover Mount Ararat alone to 22 feet. 
Now, we hear those numbers, and we can't even begin to wrap our minds around that, right? There's not that much water in the world. And so people look at this, and they go, see, it's impossible. There's no possible way that the flood can be 22 feet above even just Mount Ararat. Forget Mount Everest or forget any other mountains that are taller. There's no possible way. And all I want to do is simply point out, it depends on what baseline you start from and the assumptions you have around that. For example, I'm going I'm to go through something real quick. And I, I, I debated long and hard about doing this because I want to make sure you understand my purpose here. I'm going to give you a theory that some people put forward. It's not necessarily my own, but it's an interesting counterpoint to this. Okay, are you ready? Just with the water we have on the earth today, if the earth was completely flat, how deep do you think the water on the earth today would cover everything if, if the earth was completely flat? No mountains, no valleys, perfectly round, flat surface. How deep do you think it would be? Throw out a number. How many feet? Thousand feet deep all around the earth. Sound good? Try 12,000. All right, 12,000 feet of water over the entire earth at the earth, surface of the earth was flat. Today, the sea covers roughly 70% of the earth's surface. But what if, what if before the flood it only covered 25%? What if before the flood there was water underneath the earth? Again, this is not necessarily my theory. I'm just putting forward someone else's. What if before the flood the water was underneath the earth, almost acting like a lubricant between the crust and the core? And in the flood, this water comes bursting forth and fundamentally alters the way that the earth moves. And you say, well, that's kind of crazy. Well, in verse 11, I believe it is, uh, Moses writes that the fountains of the earth broke forth. What does that mean? Nobody knows. It just says it right there. All of them. Boom. Here they come. What if in the flood, this catastrophe is so massive that it changes the very topography of the earth? Now, you notice I used a lot of what ifs there. And again, I'm not saying that that's the right theory. But do you recognize the difference between that theory and the other theory? It's a matter of a baseline, of our starting point, of what we assume the beginning is like. And this issue of assumptions then becomes critical as we're trying to recognize exactly what's going on here in this story. Uh, I would point out to you that as we think about uh, our assumptions, two things become critical. One is that assumption of a baseline. Where do we start? Was the earth today just, is the earth today just like it was before the flood? I don't know. I have no clue. Nor does anyone else for that matter. I can't argue it one way or the other necessarily. Number two, as we think through our assumptions, do we think that everything will continue just as it is now and has been for that way for all of human history? That the natural processes we see now have extended back forever into eternity's past? We know that's not right. right? We know that just locally. How, how long do you think it would take for uh, the seed to create new land just by washing up sediment? Probably hundreds of years. And yet in 1806, I think it was, Willoughby Spit was formed in one night. One night from a hurricane. Things happen, and the assumptions with which we approach this, these questions become critical. Another problem with these assumptions that people have is that they do not take into account the divine nature of what we're reading. And sometimes people say, well, that's a cop-out. 
You can't just say, well, God did it. You can't just say that he's he's just doing some amazing things here. Why not? (laughs) Consider the source. Consider the main character. The source is the scriptures, and the main character in the story, as we will see in more detail next week, is not Noah. It's God. So I'm not so sure that it's appropriate for, for us to not include the divine nature to this story. This is not a story like any other story in the Scriptures. This describes an event that is not like any other event described in Scriptures except for the end of time when God brings a full and final judgment upon the world. All I'm pointing out to you is that when you think about the various flood theories out there, it becomes important for us to stop and consider the assumptions that we're carrying behind the scenes so that we know how to properly deal with them. This is God's story, and I think we, need to, uh, we owe him that much. Number five, building off of that, is an understanding of our biblical commitments. An understanding of our biblical commitments. And while we should always know what these commitments are, as we get ready to go into the story of this flood, it is very, very important that we all together approach this story with some some shared beliefs. Number one, all of us should believe that the scriptures are our ultimate authority. I've already said that, but I want to say it again. It forces us to ask the question of what do we really believe about God's word? Are these really the words of God? I mean, you think about this for a moment. We're saying that the words in this book were given to us by God. (laughs) That sounds crazy. Do you believe it? Is this really what you see as the ultimate source of truth in your life? Do you have any ultimate authority that sits above this? If so, you and I may come to different conclusions as we work through the story. Because for me, I see the Scriptures as being ultimate, and everything then I approach in regards to the Scriptures has to be run through that grid. If I can't run it through the grid of Scripture to understand Scripture, then I I don't know that I can be certain about the things I believe. Is it our ultimate authority? Number two, second commitment we need to make, is that the scriptures are 100% true and reliable. 100% true and reliable. If I wanted to use theological terms here, I would say that it is inerrant and sufficient. There's no errors in it, and it is there sufficiently able to give me everything I need to know in order to live for God. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that the story of the flood is true as presented? That it is not simply a myth or a bedtime story that was invented to communicate a moral. Because that's the other way to approach it. That this story is really true, that there really was a Noah, that there really was an ark, that there really was a flood, and most importantly, that there really is a God who was willing to both bring judgment upon sin and provide salvation to those who believe. You realize all of a sudden... The story isn't so different than other stories we're going to read later in Scripture. In fact, the story that we say we have to believe in order to be saved. Number three, third commitment, is that the purpose of this story is not to answer all of our questions, 
nor to fill in all of the details that we would perhaps like to know about. We talked about this a little bit in the creation story, if you were here. How normally when people approach that creation story in Genesis 1, 1 to chapter 2, verse 3, they come with all these questions. What about this? What about this? What about this? And the questions are fine. It's not wrong to ask the questions. What becomes wrong is when we come to the scriptures and we try to force them to answer questions that they're not trying to answer. See, that's, that's when the problem arises. Because quite frankly, Moses doesn't care about your questions, right? He's got a purpose that he's, he's following. He's got truth that he is trying to communicate to us. And so everything that you and I need to know in order to get his point, guess what? It's in the text. And anything that's not included was not included because it wasn't, it wasn't important. It wasn't critical. It's not there for the story. We're not going to force the story to tell us things that it's not intending to tell. We want Moses to tell us God through Moses to give us his word, which leads us then to number four, that the purpose of this story is to teach us something about God, about his character and his plan. This, and this is the turning point. This statement right here, this biblical commitment. This gives you a clue where I'm about to head starting next Sunday and where I'm going to head when we enter the text. That really, we've mislabeled this story. We call it the story of Noah's flood or the story of Noah's ark. Noah doesn't matter. Noah is not the main character. This is the story of God's flood. This is the story of God's ark. And so what we read in this story is not simply history. It is history. Don't get me wrong. It's just not, that's not all it is. It's what I would call theological history. And you say, huh? <laughs> What's the difference between history and theological history? I'll tell you what the difference is. History is simply the retelling of a story for the story's sake. Theological history is when I tell you a story that's true from the past, in order to communicate truth about God. This isn't simply history. This is theological history. It is a story Moses is telling us to teach us something about God. Remember who he's writing to here. He's writing to the children of Israel in the wilderness. He wants them to understand who they are, where they've come from, and most importantly, who in the world this God is who has brought them out of Egypt and is leading them to the promised land. And in the course of trying to fill in those details for them, he thinks that this is a critical component, and so he gives three and a half chapters to one year of story, one year of history here. I think that makes our job fairly easy. Because that means when we come into the story, we don't have to burden ourselves with all of these details that aren't clear. We're going to focus on understanding God, his character, how his, his attributes, his nature are revealed through the text, and even more so on his plan. And you're going to be, I think, next Sunday amazed by some of the things we look at in terms of understanding this story. Now, we stop there again, okay? This is where we end. We, we, we want to see next Sunday what this story teaches us about this God who is willing to both bring judgment and salvation because, as many of you know, 
That's basically the, the gospel in a different way, isn't it? The truth that there's a God who, in His holy righteousness, cannot, cannot allow sin to go unchecked forever. Who must bring judgment upon it. And yet, in the midst of the judgment, He provides a gracious way of salvation to those who believe. In that sense, Jesus is almost like the ark. Okay, do you get the connection I just made there? Okay, I'm not saying he's a wooden boat. I'm just saying it's similar. That Jesus is the way of salvation to all those who believe from God's judgment. Because what we're going to see is that judgment is coming again. This isn't the last time judgment comes. It's coming again. But just like God did with, with Noah, people who place their, their trust in, in Christ People who place their trust in God's way of salvation can be saved. This is the God of Israel. It's the God of Moses. It's the God of Noah. And guess what? It's the same God we serve today. The one who brings judgment and salvation to those whom he calls his own. And so we stop here. And I urge you to come back next Sunday, most critical of the three, as we talk about the last things here before we jump into the text so that we can see these truths about God for what they really are. Let's pray.